Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. breath this morning. I'm grieved. I'm betting you're grieved too. I'm grieved over many things. This uh, current moment is certainly more than optics, but optics matter. Um, Optics, when we use the term and relate it to uh, you know our life together. <clears throat> I'm not using the physics term here, optics, in a formal sense. I'm using the term optics in its more uh, sociological sense. Optics is the way we see things play out. The optics of uh, the President of the United States in a split screen last night, striding uh, across Lafayette Square, and then uh, holding a Bible aloft in front of a boarded-up, burned St. John's Church, while on the split screen, the protesters who had just been forcibly cleared from the square using tear gas and rubber bullets uh, wept and washed the tear gas uh, from their stinging eyes with water bottles. Optics. How we see things, how our perception of events forms our understanding of reality, and then how our understanding of reality forms our actions. Social media is a driver in many, many ways today of what we see. Um, Certainly the mainstream media is a part of this conversation, but social media is driving the optics in terms of how we interpret what we're seeing with our eyes, and, and, and frankly, what we get to see with our eyes. Your social media feed and my social media feed are different because of the way we have curated them. And so you and I have, uh, we are like each like the publishers of our own feed, which means that we are actually choosing uh, who we hear from. We, we choose what we see by who we follow. Um, and, and so... Your social media feed and my social media feed are ever more narrowed as we choose and call and block and get blocked. I got blocked last night by a lot of people. That was a kind of unique experience. I had to resist the trolls last night. Until we find ourselves in silos of information and and viewpoint where um, the only thing we see and hear are, are things that satisfy our already itchy ears. And so Michelle Bornstein and Sarah Pulliam-Bailey have a piece in the Washington Post this morning that includes quotes um, about optics from both sides. I'll just use that term. I don't even know what that means quite anymore. By a variety of, uh, of witnesses 
to the scene in Washington, D.C., particularly when we are talking about this, uh, this speech, not only in the Rose Garden, but then this uh, photograph of the president in front of the St. John's Church. Johnny Moore, who is a spokesperson for several of President Trump's evangelical religious advisors, tweeted out this immediately following um, this event. I will never forget seeing POTUS at real Donald Trump slowly and in total command walk from the White House across Lafayette Square to St. John's Church, defying those who aim to derail our national healing by spreading fear, hate, and anarchy. Uh, after just saying, I will keep you safe. Okay, that is one viewpoint. That is the way one individual saw what happened. Another individual who saw things in a similar way to the way Johnny Moore uh, saw it was said this was an iconic moment in uh, in American history. Now, the, other people viewed it differently. Um, the right Reverend Marianne Boudet, uh, and I may not be pronouncing her name correctly, and forgive me if uh, if I am. Um, many of you may know her name and know her because uh, before becoming the bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Washington, uh, D.C., she was for 18 years a rector in Minneapolis. Um, and so you may know her. Um, she says, uh, in, in view of the same events, I'm the bis- bishop. Now, the reason that she's speaking on this is because St. John's is an Episcopal church. It is a church affiliated with the Episcopal Church USA. Um, it is by no standard evangelical. Uh, She says, I'm the bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Washington. I was not given even a courtesy call that they would be clearing the area with tear gas so that they could use one of our churches as a prop. Um, She goes on to say uh, about the president, um, everything he has said and done is to inflame violence. We need moral leadership, and he's done everything to divide us. Uh, And she said um, about his use of the Bible in the photograph, we hold the teachings of our sacred text to be so grounding to our lives and everything we do. It's about love of neighbor and sacrificial love and justice. Now, if you're a student of um, of the politics of the church, you happen to know and recognize that the Episcopal Church USA does not particularly regard the word of God as an authority, Tur- certainly not when it comes to um, sexual behavior, marriage, all of these uh, social concerns and issues, life. And so um, we are going to have this conversation And we are going to have this conversation about the Bible. We are going to have this conversation about the church. We are going to have this conversation about the intersection of uh, of the church and the state. I'm particularly interested if you're an Episcopalian, how you see things today, because how you and I see things matters. So how are you seeing things in the world today? That is uh, what I am going to start off asking Mark Caleb Smith. How do you see things today? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith joins me now from Cedarville University. Mark, I want to start um, this morning with the question, how do you see what's going on in our nation right now? Well, Carmen, I have uh, children at home uh, ranging from 9 to 19 years old. And uh, yesterday evening, we were sitting around uh, finishing up dinner and um, 
you know, my son, who's on, pretty active on social media, he's 19 years old. Uh, he comes in after dinner and says, oh, it sounds like President Trump just declared martial law. And so I'm like, well, OK, let me let's try to investigate this and talk. And so I started looking and saw the speech and started talking to my younger children. And my youngest, my 11 year old daughter, not the youngest, but she says, uh, does this mean we're going to have a war? <laughs> I was like, well, you know, it doesn't mean we're going to have a war. Um so the way that I'm looking at this right now is from the perspective of a, of a father of five children uh, who are living through very tumultuous times that they really are struggling to understand. Um, and, you know, I'm a Ph.D. in political science, uh, someone who studied religion and politics for you know, more than half of his life now, it seems like. Um, and I'm struggling to understand it as well. So it's a, it's a fluid situation. Um, it's a, it's a mess in a lot of ways. Um, and as someone with my background and my discipline, you know, seeing the president, uh, go to that church and hold up that Bible, um, that, uh, that certainly resonated in a way with me. And, uh, you know, you were saying before the break that how you come into this situation is probably going to define how you see that picture of the president with that Bible. Um, and for me, it's very difficult uh, to see what I would say is the word of God uh, used in a what appears to me to be a, a campaign prop, effectively. Uh, for others, they see that, and they see that as an affirmation of their beliefs. Uh, they see that as a president who's willing to uh, fight on their behalf to maintain their faith. And Carmen, I just don't know how those two groups talk to each other. It's a very, very tough thing to see right now to think of how those two groups communicate to each other. And those two groups are not necessarily ethnically divided. I mean, what we're, no. what, we're, what we're talking about now is a much deeper worldview divide than, um, than that which would be characterized as sort of where this started, which was a conversation about um, per- police brutality in relationship to specifically George Floyd, but in in a larger scope, African-American men and the African-American community. Even beyond that, when we look at Louisville and um, and the story of Brianna. So I I do think that we 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 pivoted away from um, the content and the conversation that we really do desperately need to be having here in America. And we are now having a very different conversation when the president of the United States uses the phrase law and order or describes himself as a law and order president. um, There will be at least some people who, you know, who hear uh, something Nixon-esque in that. Um, Maybe that is not what the president meant. He the president has um, just it's been in the last week that he has used another historical reference um, that apparently he was not aware was a historical reverent reference, um, you know, when he said uh, when the looting sh- starts, the shooting starts. Um, apparently he was unaware uh, of the historical context of that from uh, the late 1960s. And, you know, he, maybe he honestly didn't know. But that's a problem. I think when you use phrases that literally light a match in people's minds, um uh, you should know where those phrases come from and what they are going to mean when they land um, on the American conscience. So when we hear law and order president, what do you think we're supposed to be hearing? 
Well, I think from a purely political perspective, the president's trying to assure people who are watching their cities uh, under siege. Uh, you know, this as you as we're talking, this has moved way beyond protesting um, into riotous behavior that's destructive. And at least some of that appears to be driven by professional protesters and agitators. Um, you know, people who aren't there to protest for George Floyd, but who are there to cause chaos and damage and to destroy. Um, so when the president uses that phrase, he's trying to assure people that there is at least one person in the country who has the authority uh, to institute justice and to institute law and order, and I'm going to do it. And at some, at some level, that's an assuring message mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for all of us, because uh, what we're looking at right now is the opposite of law and order. Uh, at the same time, uh, the president of the United States has such immense power uh, over the military, over federal law enforcement officials, uh, that the unleashing of that power in an indiscriminate way or in a way that's counterproductive uh, could simply light a match in this situation in a, in a way that we can't recover. Um, and I think what, what I'm wrestling with is I think the president clearly has legal authority to do some of these things. Um, but does he have the moral authority to do them? And that's where President Trump has been struggling over the last several years. You know, can he unify the country in a way that would would show this use of force um, would assure people, even who disagree with him, that he's using force appropriately and he's really trying to salvage a difficult situation? You know, that would take some level of moral authority. He's going to be challenged over the next few days to see if he can. Uh, put together enough authority to assure even his harshest critics that he's doing the right thing. All right. Uh, when we come back from the break, I'm going to ask uh, Mark uh, this question. What is the Insurrection Act and what would it allow the president to do? Um, because what your 19-year-old son heard or thought he heard, right. um, it sounded to him like uh, the Declaration of Martial Law has to do with federalizing the National Guard, at least at some level, and using the U.S. military uh, potentially here on U.S. soil, which is just hard for a lot of Americans to even imagine. Um, so that question up next, right after this very brief break. Continuing my conversation with Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University, I think that um, Today, I want to describe Mark as the dad of kids ranging in age from 9 to 19. And we are talking about not only how do we as adults process events that are happening, um, which are completely outside of, um, of our lived experience, and how do we interpret those events to our children in ways that are uh, meaningful from a Christian worldview, accurate uh, in terms of the days in which we live, and yet not without hope. And so, um, uh, Mark, let me just ask this. What is the Insurrection Act? What would it allow the president to do? Um, and why am I asking that question in relationship to uh, a conversation about federalizing the National Guard? Yeah, you know, Carmen, I think uh, on my list of possible questions you had asked me in our upcoming interviews over the past <laughs> several months, I did not think a question about the Insurrection Act was on the way. So, um, yeah, the Insurrection Act is passed in 1807 by Congress, and it basically gives the president the authority uh, to use the militia. Of course, in that context, they called the militia. Now we'd say the National Guard of various states 
um, or to use military forces, so federal military forces, uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and so on, uh, to enforce the law is essentially what the act says. Enforce the law in areas where uh, there's been a lack of law enforcement due to insurrection or other, other, other reasons. Uh, the act was amended in 2006 to allow for presidents to use it in broader situations, um, including things like natural disasters, uh, epidemics, which sounds familiar, um, and other events that kind of lead to this sort of lawless kind of environment. Um, the act, the president, in order to use the act, the president has to notify uh, insurgents, however we want to define those people, that um, enforcement's coming and it's coming with the military and they have a given amount of time to disperse. Uh, once that period of time is over, he can then issue an executive order uh, calling into uh, calling the National Guard or the military into the environment to enforce the law. Um, the president has this power, and I think this particular situation actually is pretty close to how the people who wrote this uh, act would have thought the president might use it. And so uh, a lot of people today are going to be arguing the president doesn't have the authority to do this, doesn't have the legal authority, but I think the Insurrection Act actually gives him uh, the legal power to do it. Okay, so we went from um, a level of assurance related to right. uh, a statement about law and order to no small measure of fear. Like we moved from what your 19-year-old asked right. um, or what it sounded like uh, to your 19-year-old to your 9-year-old's question. Does this right. mean we're going to have a war? Um, that that was a question um, in yep. different form that I heard in my own house last night. Um, yep. You know, are are we – is this a civil war? Are we headed towards civil war? And um, – and then an eye-rolling um, response from another child that said, again? Now, that is an interest, right? So yeah, um, yeah. so take us, maybe take us into your conversations as a parent. Because sure. I do think that for a lot of us, there's, there's a rubber meets the road conversation that has to happen today. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that people have to understand is this act uh, has been used in our history. And it has not only been used during times of a civil war. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower used it, for example, famously uh, to quell protests and riots in Little Rock, Arkansas, um, to to allow for the integration of the public schools at, at Central High in Little Rock. Um, George Herbert Walker Bush used it in 1992 uh, during the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles. And so this act has been used. It does not mean that we're going to have a war. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're under martial law, which would mean basically our court systems are closed and the military is functioning as a judge, jury, and uh, you know, enforcer of the law. That doesn't mean that whatsoever. It just means the military can be used in a limited fashion uh, to settle a situation and to enforce the law. So we've used it before. Uh, it's just with President Trump and the division that we have right now in the country, uh, I think there's just a lot more suspicion of his use of it. Uh, than compared to even President Eisenhower or President Bush. Here's one of the things that sort of calms me when I consider the prospect of this happening. Um, the The members of the U.S. military are not only highly well-trained, they are people who have worked cross-culturally around the world. And so they have a different level of training and a different level uh, or a different chain of authority than our local, more local law enforcement. And so when you're dealing with particularly communities where there's a high level of mistrust of the police for for good reason in many cases, right. Right. Um, 
it it does there is an assurance to me there is this like hopefulness related to um utilizing members of the US citizenry who actually do know how to not only keep peace but make peace like they have been highly trained and they have been tested and they've been tested in really hostile situations which you know frankly some of the things that we're seeing on television right now are hostile environments and situations that many of our police have never been tested in. And this is probably not the time to have your first test. Carmen, yeah, that's a great point. And uh, given what they've done in the Middle East during the past decade plus, um, two decades now almost, uh, this would be a similar kind of situation for them walking into a very difficult environment uh, with people on all sides and making these very difficult choices. The, 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 The rubber hits the road, so to speak, when you think about their rules of engagement. You know, in what situations will they be exactly. allowed to use force or authorized to use force? And in what situations are they just simply there to take uh, whatever punishment gets doled out? And that's what we don't know. And that's what you'd hope we would hear more about uh, if the president gets into this situation. And in his speech yesterday, he said he wants to give governors and mayors a chance to quell these protests in their own way. And if they don't, then he will go down this path. And so I'm really hoping and praying we're going to see state and local authorities use some of their own force to uh, bring some peace into these situations first before we get to the military. Yeah. Amen. Mark Caleb Smith, thank you as always so much. Um, Keep us in the loop about the conversations happening in your home because they are the conversations happening in our homes as well. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Carmen. You take care of yourself. And uh, I pray for all of you and your listeners in that tough environment right now. Know that other people outside are praying for you as well. Amen. Thank you, my brother. We'll be right back. What's going on in your city right now? How do you see what's going on in your city and in our nation right now? If your pastor is uh, is white, how is your pastor responding and how is he leading your congregation to respond? How are you hearing that in the midst of just the very loud cacophony of, of news coverage right now? Um, what are pastors saying and how are they addressing not only the issue of racism, but now unrest and riot. That conversation up next with Minneapolis Pastor Jason Meyer. We'll be right back. Moms and dads have heard that sooner or later, they'll have to show their teen a little tough love. But what exactly does that mean? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Tough love isn't making her suffer consequences or holding her to a strict set of standards. That approach is actually pretty easy compared to what I believe it really is. Tough love is loving your teen when she says she hates you, when she violates the very core of what you're all about, when she's intent on going against what you've taught her, and when she purposely pushes you to your limit and beyond. I know it's tough to love someone who's acting like that. But trust me when I say your long-term reward will be worth the effort. So here's the question. Ready to use some tough love? Mark Gregson has more wisdom for parents available online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Again, parentingtodaysteens.org.
Joining me now, Pastor Jason Meyer. Um, Jason, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks, Carmen. Glad to be with you. Hey, um, let's do this. Um, I think that when we talk about the context of ministry, it's a little bit easier for you to describe your context of ministry to our listeners than for me to try to describe it. So um, when when I call you a pastor, tell people what your context of ministry is. So I'm a pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. There are three locations uh, in Lakeville and downtown Minneapolis and in Moundsview. And uh, we're, we're a, a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people, and we're also trying to be a light for Jesus in the city and be able to say that Jesus is the hope for the city. So when things like what's happening now in our nation really hit our, our city, we want to be there and shine the light of Christ. Um, what did you say to your congregation on Sunday? Well, I said a lot of things. Um, it's sometimes like trying to fit a $10 worth of conversation into a, a nickel worth of time. Basically, what I told them was, here's what you say when suffering is great. According to Job chapter 2, you say nothing. When Job's three friends came to him, there was silence, but it was a certain kind of silence, a certain kind of silence that speaks volumes. They saw all the evil that had happened to him, and so they made an appointment to show him sympathy, and they wept with him, and they sat in solidarity with him seven days and seven nights. So I said, when, when suffering is great, you have to see the evil, you have to show sympathy, and you have to sit in solidarity. And that has to happen before you rush to say something. Because oftentimes when we rush to say something, we, we subtly take the attention away from the sufferer and put it on us and our words. And so in this current situation, I said, I mean, let's, let's look at what's in front of us. We have to lament. We have to lament the evil that we see and the suffering and there's so many things to lament right now. We have to lament the fact that over 100,000 people have died in America because of COVID-19. And there are senior citizens, especially, that are uh, in, in nursing homes and care facilities, and, and they're, they're dying without anybody to touch them. We have to lament that. We have to lament the fact that the, the work of generations of people is going up in smokes in the matter of mere moments. We have to lament the fact that there are people out there right now that think uh, the message can be love God and rob your neighbor or looting. And we have to be able to say that anarchy is not the answer. We have to be able to say that the, the anger of man doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. You can't overcome evil with evil. We have to be able to, to lament all the, the rioting and the looting and the, and the dying, but we, we also need to be able to say, not only is it, is it easy to say rioting's wrong, sometimes we're slow to say racism's wrong. And I said the main thing that we're lamenting is to, 
to have the moral discernment to be able to look at the rioting and not forget and ignore what sparked the rioting. Because for us, in our context of ministry, as a church that's predominantly majority culture, it's easy for us to be able to look at what happened to George Floyd, to watch the video, and to say that was wrong. And hopefully we do. It's, it's like the big E on the moral eye exam chart. It's wrong. But we can't join a lament like that unless we repent of our complicity to not speak up and stand up in solidarity with our African-American brothers and sisters, because when we lament with them, we see a video and say, that's wrong. They look at that video and say, that's our story. White knee on a black neck. That's our story. That's what's happened in the history of our country. 400 years of oppression and suffering. So it's a mighty long lament that you're joining at that point. And it's just important for us as a, as a church to be able to say, we're, we're an image of God people. We're, we're the kind of people that are going to stand up for life wherever we see it devalued. And, and I don't, I, I told the church, I don't know if anybody has really been to a protest where there's been an African-American that's been killed or shot. And, and you go to a, a, a protest or you go to, you watch a service or a funeral. It is the saddest thing to sit there with them and to hear the message that they say to each other. The main message they say to each other is, our lives matter. We, it's, it's wrong to be treated this way. We, we have value. And if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ believes to the back of our teeth that all lives made in the image of God matter, then they shouldn't just have to be the ones to tell themselves that. The church should be standing up also and saying, yes, you matter. You're made in the image of God. You matter. And so part of our joining a lament has to be repenting for not standing up to say your life matters. And, and that means in our discipleship as a church, we, we teach our people and we teach our children. When we see police brutality, we, we, we stand up and speak up in solidarity and say, those lives matter. Or when Hispanics get mistreated and say, you're not welcome here. We don't want you. We say, no, your, your life matters. Or when Asian Americans are mistreated now and slandered and say, go home. We don't want you. We, we stand up and say, your life matters. And especially in the church, it's not just the sacred life of human life, but the infinite value of Jesus' life that really binds us together, and we say there's, there's something deeper that binds us together than the differences of ethnicity or age or anything else. So that, that was my message to the church. 
I'm talking with Pastor Jason Meyer from Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis. Um, Jason, when we come back from this very brief break, I want to move from life, all life matters to black lives matter. That life in particular matters. Um, I mean, we can point to specific examples like George Floyd. And then I want to get us to the place where I know his name because he's my friend and my brother before this happens. Like, I, I think that until we get to the place where I know my brothers and sisters in Christ who are people of color, um, until I know their names and until, you know, when I'm interpreting this to my kids, um, my lament is real because I know that person. That is my friend. That is not just my brother in Christ with whom I'm going to spend all eternity. That's a person whose name I know because I have uh-huh. um, I have bothered to be actively anti-racist, not just passively um, uh, complicit. And so I want to have that conversation yeah. Um, because I know that uh, City Joy and Transform Minnesota um, are actively working on those fronts. So that conversation up next with Pastor Jason Meyer. We'll be right back. Show me your face. Fill up this space. My world needs you right now. My world needs Continuing my conversation with Pastor Jason Meyer um, from Bethlehem Baptist. Um, Jason, let's talk about active anti-racism. Let's talk about being actively anti-racist. Let's talk about um, uh, in our lament, um, the point at which we get up and we go and we uh, and we do actively making our culture a place of of healing and justice. Can we talk about those things? Yes, uh, I mean, at this point, what we have to understand is Jesus says, you'll know, people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another, which means the the church ought to be this display window for the supernatural love of Christ, where we show that there is the, the what hate tears down, the love of Jesus alone can rebuild. So, Love and justice and these things, they're active realities. They're going to be made visible. They have to be seen. And so, for example, when there's rioting and mass destruction, um, our church helped organize uh, something called Support the City, where we get volunteers to come up and, and clean, sweep out, get, get the glass out of there, sweep up. And uh, and we did a pop-up grocery there on Lake Street where uh, communities were just devastated. And you don't have now medicine and groceries and all that. So we there's about 35 tons of food that were given away. I've never seen anything like it where the as donations are coming in, uh, literally somebody's handing them to you to donate and someone's reaching for it at the same time, and you hand it to them. That's And there was an African-American man there, and he just started bawling in front of me and said, nobody cares for us, and you guys are caring for us. Thank you. And you're, you're able to say, it's because Jesus loves you. God so loved Minneapolis that he sent his son. He so loved Lake Street that he sent his son, his one and only son. So what we're doing there is we're showing active love, not passive, silent, 
complacent. We're praying, really, to be actively anti-racist means to be pro-loving, proactive with our love, being able to show that we care, being able to show that these lives matter, and especially when you when you get to know them, especially when you're actually there in their lives for the long haul. After the hashtags have faded and the protests are gone, you're there for the long haul to rebuild it. So in Support the City, like this three-phase thing we have, we're saying, okay, there's emergency needs like a pop-up grocery because the grocery stores, they don't exist right now. So we're having to be that that emergency service. And then the second thing that we want to do is to be able to keep the grocery stores in business. We can't let those grocery stores go because they, they're an essential part of the community. So right now we're like, we're buying up the groceries every week from them so we can give them away because those goods and services, like we're, we're for those businesses and essential needs trying to keep that going and then the the third thing that we're trying to do is just in phase three hopefully by september that enough money has been raised enough enough cleanup has been done enough infrastructure has been there that we can say look look, this is what it looked like before and this is what hate tore down but now look at what love has rebuilt it's we're back things are open again and um, that will be the love of Christ actively shown. That's pro-life in action. Okay, I am. I'm going to go um, into my uh, uh, city center and um, and buy groceries at that local grocery store and give them away. Like that's just something that anybody could go and do. That is that does not require. Um, no matter where you're listening right now, no matter where you live, that is something tangible you could do. One of the one of the questions that um, a child asked me the other day, young young person, why was um, George Floyd trying to pass a twenty dollar, you know, a fake twenty dollar bill? And I said, well, because he didn't have a real one. I mean, the only reason that that is the only reason I could give. The only reason you would, you know, right? And 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 again, no one in any uh, in any way is is should be trying to justify at any level what happened to him. But trying to explain what is behind a story is, is sometimes challenging. And so um, let's let's make sure people have what they need um, in the communities where we live. Let's not wait for someone else to do what God has put us in a position to do. Um, and that's what I hear you saying, Jason. Go and actively do the thing that's in front of you to do right now that is an act of love, that meets the need of a neighbor, um, that provides, you know, in the middle of this chaos, that provides, I mean, the peace of a banana, right? Like bananas, mm-hmm. you know, as in, you know, handing out Absolutely. bananas is an act of peace today. Um, and so, um, yeah, I just uh, thank you. I wanted to just say yeah. thank you. And I want to... Um, uh, I want to tell you that those of us in other places around the country are praying for those of you who are in the city of Minneapolis. Um, and we are praying not only for the city of Minneapolis today, but for cities across the country and the witness of God's people in each and every one of those communities. So let me and invite our listeners to check out cityjoy.org. 
and also Transform Minnesota, which is transformmn.org. Um, they are also on Facebook at Transform MN. You can obviously find Jason personally at uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church. Um, Jason, thank you, as always, for joining us on Mornings with Carmen. You're welcome, Carmen. Thank you. What a, what a privilege. We'll be right back. Okay, Job chapter 2 uh, is where I am going to encourage us all to um, sit this morning for a while. That was the encouragement of Pastor Jason Meyer. Let us, um, let us sit with those who are suffering. Let us see the evil. Let us sit. Let us show sympathy. Let us weep with those who weep. Let us be in solidarity with them. Um, Job's friends are often uh, characterized as the guys who didn't do and say the right things. But there in Job chapter 2, it, it starts off with seven days and nights of silent solidarity in Job's suffering. Um, how long have we sat with those who are uh, lamenting and, um, and grieved with them as they grieve? We've talked about the concept of awake, and the reality is the wake is the period of time between the death and the burial. Um, and we are still uh, grieving as a nation and walking in lament. So let us spend some time there today in Job chapter 2. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.